out of the sky My dreams went crashing When you said goodbye Who'd think that after all I've been to you That you and I would be through Hello, welcome to the H.P. Lovecraft Book Club. So in this episode, I'll be looking at the thing on the doorstep. This is a nice, fairly concise tale uh, mixed up with much more complex and uh, detailed and sprawling stories like At the Mountains of Madness, Shadow of Innsmouth, Dreams in the Witch House, and The Shadow at a Time. Now, this was written way back in 1933, so I'm doing this in like kind of the order they were written in. So it was written after Dreams in the Witch House. It wasn't published until January 1937 in Weird Tales, which I think that makes it the last uh, work he actually published, because I think The Haunter in the Dark um, and The Shadow of the Time were both published in 1936. So this one uh, was published just two months uh, before Lovecraft's death in March of 1937. Um, so this tale is... It's one of a series of tales dealing with... Uh, I guess mind swapping it seemed to be a theme he was really really obsessed with later in his life you have in dreams of the witch house you have uh you know a mind swapping of the of a type going on uh at least someone being pulled into other worlds uh kind of through their dreams uh really you know so it's not quite the mind swap but but it's there but certainly shadow of time and this story both deal with this this theme of of mind swapping um, we've seen it uh, early in his career, too, in stories like um, Beyond the Wall of Sleep. Uh, maybe that's the best example of that, of an early exploration of the, of the horror of the mind swap, of, of, of finding your life taken from you. Um, now, Shadow Out of Time, so, it's, not, it's not really frightening, to, to be honest. It's... It's really a, a means, the mind swap is really a means, I think, for Lovecraft to maybe talk about humanity's place in the cosmos, but also, you know, to explore this Yithian race, this, this um, the great race, um, to explore a, a rising, falling empire, a decadent empire that's, that's, that knows it's going to run out of time. These are all, I think, thematically very interesting for Lovecraft. The thing on the doorstep really just pushes the horror aspect of it. You know, someone having their mind solely taken from them by some other malevolent entity. So in that sense, I think this one is quite notable in this mix of stories that deal with with mind swapping. Um, because I, I think this gets the closest to being, you know, actually kind of terrifying. Uh, now, the story is set up like a confession. So it's, it's very much like uh, the... Uh, What's that uh, statement of Randolph Carter, one of his earliest published stories in which we have someone like in a police station confessing to, you know, sort of a crime. In that case, it's sort of like grave robbing. This is a much more serious crime where he's being accused of, of murdering his, his friend, Edward Derby. The narrator, his name's just Dan. Uh, we'll just call him the narrator. I think his name shows up a few times here. Um, Oh yeah, I forgot the case of Charles Dexter Ward. That's the other. This this story actually has a lot in common with the case of Charles Dexter Ward, too. Uh, you know, even though the way the mind swap sort of works is different. In the case of Charles Dexter Ward, someone's just taken over his social role uh, after murdering him. Here, someone's actually losing his mind. So someone finds a way to live forever by by transferring their their consciousness into other people. Um, now. Another notable thing about the thing on the doorstep, um, and I think I'm some other some other people have also mentioned this, is we get probably our most fully realized female character, and then it's revealed not to be a female at all, right? It's revealed to be just the, the shell of, of a woman, right? But we do get this this very fascinating gender politics in which our villain, this Ephraim, um, takes over the body of Aseneth because it's convenient, because she's weak-willed. And she can do that. In fact, Der Edward Derby is picked also because of his, his relatively weak will, as well as his interest in occult subjects. Um, but Ephraim says that 
this female body is not fully human, right? And it's said several times in the story. I don't know if we're to take from this that Lovecraft thinks being female, being a woman is not being fully human. It's pretty clear that this is the attitude of the villain of the story. But there is some gender politics here, and we get a bit more of it than ever before. Um, and I also want to say, like, in this story and in Shadow at a Time, we get, like, married characters. We get people with kids. We get people with, like, more normal lives than a lot of, of Lovecraft's heroes. Like, we don't get the family life of too many of these characters, except to the sense that of their heredity, heredity right? They're, they're the family history we sometimes get. But we don't get the family life too much of them. Here we, you know, it's a marriage. The centerpiece of the story is a marriage between Derby and this woman, Asenath. And in Shadow Over Time, we have a character with a normal family. Like, it's taken away from him um, really early in the story. But, you know, these are, these, these characters are, especially, I think Shadow of Time is the most notable for having a character that's really, really not Lovecraftian, but gets thrust into this. He's not a seeker. He's just a professor of economics who... You know, plenty weird happens to him and he's forced to kind of figure out what, what's going on. Um, this guy, Edward Derby, is a little bit odder, right? So anyways, the main character is Edward Derby, even though our narrator is Dan. Our narrator is really there to be the agent to record the story after it, it takes place. Um, it's, it's fairly short, I think 30 pages. So yeah, so it's it's. Shortish compared to what he's been writing at this point, but compared to his early tales, it's it's fairly lengthy. So it's a really good read, though. I really kind of enjoy this story. It's it's a guilty pleasure in a way. Um, so we start out in chapter one, uh, and this has like seven, eight chapters, maybe seven chapters. So they're all really short. Um, in chapter one, we get Edward's background. Um, and his kind of decline of decadence and his two, two decadence and his occult interests. And we get learn about his friendship with the narrator. We also get the, the opening statement, which tells us sort of what's going to happen, that, that he killed his friend, but it wasn't really his friend. And he says, I'm innocent of killing Edward Derby. I was murdering something else. Um, his name, Edward Pickman Derby, suggests a connection to... Uh, Pikmin of the Pikmin's model. There's actually a lot of playing with names uh, in some of these later stories with Lovecraft trying to build a larger connected geography and world um, in his final, you know, half dozen stories or so. Uh, for instance, Gilman. Gilman is a major family in Innsmouth and they show up here. And of course, that's the name of the main character in the Dreams of the Witch House. And I don't know if the connection is explicitly made, but it's hard not to, to want to make that connection between these characters. So anyways, um, our narrator has known Edward Derby for most of his life. Um, and he's always kind of presented as, you, you almost want to think this guy's sort of like a Lovecraft um, in that he kind of is taken out of school, sort of homeschooled, very sensitive, secluded as a child. There's parallels to Lovecraft's own life, I think, here. That's, that's undeniable. But... Lovecraft doesn't make him a complete copy. For instance, Derby here has no interest in science and no interest in, in math, with things that Lovecraft does have an interest in, certainly. As we saw in the last story, Dreams in the Witch House. Uh, instead, this guy is really uh, a literature guy, a poet, which, of course, Lovecraft is. So he's a mix. He, he's a mix of different characters, I think. Um, but he's a weak, odd child. And what's great here about this story is a way is like we, we were told that he gets to freedom through his imagination. You know, his imagination is, quote, one avenue of freedom, which is a great way of thinking about imagination, I think. I think it's very useful for many young people. Um, but the whole story then is like from this freedom, he's drawn into a type of slavery through his relationship with Azanath. And that's his ultimate fate is, is a type of mental enslavement and bodily enslavement. Um, now, one other thing we want to think about here, another story we want to think about here is the Hound. Again, way, way back in this series, um, we talked about the Hound. The Hound deals with characters who, who get interested in like decadent art and the, get, they get interested in the pre-Raphaelites and they're interested in the symbolists, the symbolists in particular. And this doesn't really do it for them. So they take up grave digging and they create this occult museum. And it's all really wild. Uh, I, I kind of like that story. Here, Derby is the same way. He kind of gets pulled into darker and darker themes and, and pulled really into decadence. Um, quote, his Pollock talents turn more and more towards the decadent and his art other artistic sensi 
sensitiveness and yearnings were half aroused in him. We had great discussions in those days. I had been through Harvard, had studied in Boston Architect's office and married, and had finally returned to Arkham to practice my profession, settling in the family homestead at South Sertan Street since my father moved to Florida, blah, blah, blah. Um, so he kind of shifts to more decadent interests, very much like the characters in The Hound. Now he goes to Miskatonic University, and while there he starts to become interested in the forbidden knowledge. I, I don't think there's one story since the Colorado space that doesn't have a character delving into at least the stories he published under his name. We haven't got to the revisions yet, the final set of revisions yet, but pretty much all the stories he published as Lovecraft stories are some way a character delves into the forbidden knowledge, right? The Necronomicon is constantly mentioned, or he'll take other books from other weird fiction writers. He'll borrow stuff from Robert E. Howard. He'll borrow stuff from from other stories he wrote, like the Panoptic Manuscripts will come up, the Book of Iben. I think that may be a reference to something from one of the Dreamland stories. Um, you know, he just loves having these characters get drawn in some way into this uh, occult text. And it's true in Shadow Out of Time as well. Um, so anyways, that's kind of our background. That's enough to get us introduced to Edward Derby. He's just kind of a weird kid. You've, you've met these types, right? They probably read Lovecraft when they were young, when you knew them in high school. And just uh, to be clear, I didn't read Lovecraft in high school. I had friends who did, but I, I read him very, very late into adulthood and maturity. Uh, I did read like fantasy literature and Tolkien and things like that, and some science fiction, but more fantasy, I guess. Played a little bit of D&D. So I'm, I'm not totally immune from from I guess the nerd culture of that time but it's wasn't wholly seduced by it I guess um, anyways moving on chapter two chapter two of this story covers uh, Azaneth and her beginning to corrupt Edward this is a pretty fast moving tale we get right into the business um, now her background is she's her name's Azaneth Waite and she's from one of the families of Innsmouth um, so we got the the Waits, the Gilmans, the Elliots, and the Marshes. I'm, I, I don't know that from memory. I'm, I'm dealing with uh, Klinger's annotations to be um, full of respect to his hard work. Um, I just read those off the, off the page. But the Waits are one of them. So, you know, back in Shadow Vernsmouth, we, we learned of these, like, elder families of that town. Um, the Waits were one of them. So we got a nice, king, we got a nice um, uh, Innsmouth connection here which is great. And I'm still not sure the connection between the Gilmans and, and, and Gilman of Dreams of the Witch House. I want there to be that connection. Um, we get a little bit of the reminder of the history of Innsmouth and its decline and how people of Arkham don't want to go there. This story is set in Arkham. Alongside Dreams of the Witch House, this probably gives us a brusque glimpse of Arkham as a city. Um, not as much, I guess. We don't get as much of a feel for Arkham. I'm actually surprised with this read-through how little we actually see of Arkham. It's a, it's a location, but it's, it's, we don't get that much description outside of what we see in Dreams of the Witch House. There's a little bit here, I have to say. Um, so anyway, she is Ephraim Waite's daughter. Um, now, the mother is sort of unknown. We've seen this before in Shadow of Innsmouth, too. They're famous for the unknown hidden wives. So the wife... So she might have the Innsmouth look. I don't know. You get the sense she's she's kind of she's kind of hot. I don't know. Um, I don't think we get a f the best description of her. Uh, but anyway, she she's able to really be. She's really attractive to Edward Derby for whatever reason. But we get this background and this Ephraim. You know, that's who this is. This is Ephraim has taken over the mind of his daughter who was weak willed. And so we got this very, very strong-willed woman, right? So this is the interesting gender politics here, right? If we had more female characters, well-developed female characters in Lovecraft's work to work off of, and maybe it's something we can think about when we look at more of the revisions at this time, we can say, oh, this is, this is just a, a single example, right, of a, of a female character. It's not a trope for Lovecraft necessarily because he doesn't really talk about women that much, right? Uh, they're background characters, for the most part, if they exist at all. Um, some stories don't have really any women at all. So they're, they're sort of background characters, and here we get one, but that's, that's weak will. That doesn't prove Lovecraft's a misogynist or a sexist. Um, it doesn't prove that much about his family life. 
I think if you want to make that leap, you, you can, but I think that's going too far, to be frank, without a little bit more evidence. Um, I think um, for the story to work, she, it needs to be a woman, right? For Edward Derby to want to marry her, right? And for the whole Ephraim's plan. And I think we learn more about Ephraim's gender politics than, than Lovecraft's in a way. So Ephraim being the character. Now, maybe Ephraim is just parroting what Lovecraft really thinks about women. But I don't see it. I've been reading the letters. I don't see sex. I see racism. I see anti-immigrant sentiment. I don't really see sexism here, you know, in those letters. He's actually quite polite, I think, to It's Not that that doesn't mean he's not full of sexist ideas. Uh, he actually has some very, really progressive and transgressive ideas about marriage and, and gender, as he reveals in some of his letters. And I've talked about those in earlier episodes. So I don't know. I'm, I'm you know, I'm fully... Ex- accepting of the centrality of race to Lovecraft's views. And I've, I've talked about that a lot on this podcast. I'm just not ready to say that he's a sexist, too. As some people will kind of lump these together. He's a racist and a sexist. Well, racist, yeah, but I'm not convinced he's a sexist yet, from this story anyways. But whatever. In any case, this is the most interesting story dealing with gender politics in any sense, in any of his stories. It's... You know, we do get finally like a fully fleshed, strong female character. And it turns out it's a man at the end, right? Um, and she's powerful. Anyways, we get her. She has incredible abilities. Uh, it's partially why she, uh, Edward's attracted to her. Um, quote, she professed to be able to raise thunderstorms, though, though her seemingly success would generally lead to some uncanny knack of prediction. All animals markedly disliked her, and she could make any dog hollow by certain motions of her right hand. There were times when she displayed snatches of knowledge and language very similar, singular and very shocking for a young girl, and she would frighten her schoolmates with leers and winks of an explicable kind. Um, she also seems to have the power of hypnosis and things like this. Um, now, it seems these are powers she gained after her, her mind gets taken over by, by Ephraim. So these are actually Ephraim's powers, right? Now, it's, you know, Ephraim's a pretty nasty guy here, of course, killing his daughter, essentially. Um, we also get the suggestion that his, that Aseneth in her normal state was maybe a, maybe having developmental disabilities or, or something. It's not quite clear to me, but um, but anyway, so Aseneth we get is this man in a woman's body, um, and Edward is immediately taken with Aseneth for her because she's into this occult weird stuff that he's into. So it's really a pairing of interest initially, and he's. And it's kind of a meeting of opposites because he's sort of a little bit off, a little bit weak-willed himself, although he kind of matures by the end of the story in a really impressive way. I think there's a nice character arc for Edward, to be honest. Um, but she, she kind of fills that other side of his character, right? So it's opposites attract kind of thing, but they do have a common interest in this, this occult learning, which is great. Um, and they very quickly um, marry. Um, married just by Justice for the Peace, no elaborate wedding ceremony. And pretty much immediately there's, there's changes in, in Edward. Quote, when Edward called on me after the honeymoon, I thought he looked slightly changed. Azaneth had made him get, that, get rid of that undeveloped mustache, and there was more than that. He looked soberer and more thoughtful, his habitual pout of childish rebellion that's being exchanged with a, for a look almost of genuine sadness. I was puzzled to disguise that I whether I liked or disliked the change. Certainly he seemed, for the moment, more normally adult than ever before. Perhaps the marriage was a good thing. Might not have, might, might not the change of dependence form the start toward actual neutral, neutral, neutralization, leading ultimately to responsible independence. Sorry, I, I kind of botched that reading, but as I often do. But it's really important because, again, we get this kind of suggestion of, of Early on, imagination as leading to freedom. Here, marriage leads to independence. It's a very kind of traditional American kind of idea that like the man is independent when he's got a job and a family and then breaks free of his of his childhood childishness. Um, you know, our narrator is more, I think, a conservative, a cultural conservative on marriage issues, and he's like, "Oh, finally, Derby's going to grow up," and we see this evidence already. He's shaved off the mustache. 
He's burying himself more like that of a married man. You know, a lot of, like, you know, again, there's a lot of interesting gender politics going on in this story, which is one reason I, I like coming revisiting this one. But it, it kind of doesn't work out because Asenath, a lot of what she does is just sort of help him with his, with his studies. All right. Now, chapter three. Now starts, things start to get weird. Um, and in chapter three and four, things really start to get... We start to get a sense of what's going on. Um, Edward starts to change more dramatically, right? He starts taking these trips, which are, you know, purport to be like research trips he takes with Asenath. You know, but there's changes both in Asenath and in Edward that are like not just physical and not just in bearing, but psychological. Quote, it was after the first year that people began talking about the change in Edward Derby. It was very casual talk for the change was purely psychological and it brought up some interesting points. Now and then it seemed Edward was observed to wear an expression and do things wholly incompatible with his usual flabby nature. For example, although in the old days he could not drive a car, he now seemed occasionally to dash in and out of an old crowd and shield driver with Asenath's power packard. Handle it like a master and meeting traffic entanglements with skill and determination utterly alien to his accustomed nature. End quote. Um, and he takes the Innsmouth Road, which is something most Arkham people don't want to do. If you remember that about, that's one thing you got to remember about Innsmouth, Arkham people don't go there. And he's going there. He's taking the Innsmouth Road on these trips with Asenath. Um, He's still interested in decadent stuff. In fact, it gets worse. He starts dropping out of his normal college environment and, and gets involved in the circle and gets involved in more and more weird stuff. And what's really great about this is even before it seems our narrator starts to worry explicitly about something happening to him, it's Derby who worries. He starts saying things like, you know, quote, he's going too far. He needs to save his identity. He knows from very early in this relationship that Asenath is taking over his mind at various points. And that seems to be what's happening for much of the story. It's, it's a part-time. He, she borrows, or I guess Ephraim, is borrowing Derby's mind. So Derby's, Derby is having these times where he doesn't, he's not aware of who he is. Or he's somewhat aware that his mind is being taken over by Asenath, right? But not enough to realize it's a man. It's, it's Ephraim. He kind of gets to that later on. He figures it out later on. But early on, he thinks it's Asenath somewhat controlling his, his mind, right? Um, and he even talks about, like, wanting to, you know, to move back to the old Derby mansion, get a more solid foundation there, and Asenath says, no, no, we're going to stay in the, stay in this other house. Um, so he, he really can't fight her. It's, she's kind of controlled by her will. But he knows something's up. He knows it's not, not right. Um, and he starts going to meetings. That's... A, and it, it's we're told he starts with Asenath going to meetings with other weirdos interested in really, really dark, nasty stuff. Um, and he stopped visiting our narrator, Dan. Quote, Edward's calls now grew a trifle more frequent and his hints occasionally became concrete. What he said was not to be believed, even in centuried and legend-haunted Arkham. But he threw out his dark lore with a sincerity and convincingness that made one fear for his sanity. He talked about terrible meetings in lonely places of cyclopean ruins in the heart of the main woods behind which vast staircases led down to abysses of nighted secrets of complex angles that led through invisible walls to other regions of space and time of the hideous exchanges of personalities that permitted explorations of remote and forbidden places in other worlds and in different space-time continuum end quote now there's a lot of other stories sort of referenced here. Shadow of Time is essentially re referenced. We got the exploration of an underground area like in The Nameless City or at the Mountains of Madness. The outdoor meetings of cultists like in Whisper and Darkness. He's pulling out a lot here. And it's not explicitly we can make one-to-one -one connections of these stories to these other tales. But again, I think Lovecraft's really trying to create a, a mythology. Himself. I'm not going to call it the Cthulhu Mythos because that's invented by other people, but he is connecting things. The groundwork for that Cthulhu Mythos is being laid by uh, Lovecraft himself. Um, he even starts to talk about strange geometry and things and rituals and, and things about survival of death. So that's ultimately what this is about. Um, now, Innsmouth. The Innsmouth look gives you that ability to, to live forever, right? As a deep one. Uh, I guess Ephraim's found another way 
a different path <laughs> to immortality, and that's through magic, through spells. Um, but anyways, that's chapter three. So chapter three is really about, I think, Derby coming to realize something's up and his participation in more and more dark rituals. At this point, though, it seems Azaneth is just, or Ephraim Azaneth is continuing to do her thing. Um, I don't know the proper pronoun here. I'm going to have to think for a while. Uh, living as a woman, so we'll use her. We'll use her for now. Uh, you know, they're still doing her th their thing. Maybe you'll use the they. Uh, exploring these rituals, spells, hanging out with their friends. And, but occasionally jumping into Derby's mind, taking over his body. Um, when they, like, you need... When he wants to drive, because Derby doesn't drive. What a great symbol, though, of, a, of, a, of someone who's not fully a grown-up man in America. Someone who doesn't drive, right? In Asia, you see it all the time. But in America, you know, it sounds right. All right, chapter four. Um, chapter four, Derby really starts to move into straight-up madness. Um, and this is after a main trip. He's gone on this main... He's gone... Uh, on this trip for like two months. And it turns out it's from Maine because he gets a telegram from Maine. And, and this basically says, you got to come and get me um, to Dan. And, and he goes up there and he finds Derby in a cell in a farmhouse, basically going mad. Saying, he says this, Dan, for God's sake, the pit of the Shoggoths down in 6,000 steps, the abomination of abominations. I would never let her take me and then I found myself there. Yashab Nigareth. The shape rose up from the altar, and there were 500 that howled. The hooded thing bleated, Kamong, Kamog. That was Ephraim's secret name in the coven. I was there, but she promised she wouldn't take me. A minute before, I was locked up in the library, and then I was there where she had gone with my body, in the place of utter blasphemy, the unholy pit where the black realm begins and the watcher guards the gate. I saw a Shoggoth. It changed shape. I can't stand it. I won't stand it. I'll kill her if she ever sends me in there again. I'll kill that entity. Her, him, it. I'll kill it. I'll kill it with my own hands. It's a really dramatic quote, except should have the pronoun should have been they, I suspect. Um, but a lot of references to other stories here. Of course, you got the Shabnigareth, uh, one of these uh, Lovecraft's gods. We got the secret name, which we saw used to pretty good effect in the Dreams in the Witch House. We got Chagas down there. Um, he's just throwing everything at us in this little mini mini story. But anyways, they he ends up driving back, and this drive back is really really kind of fascinating because during the drive back um, from Maine, and it's a pretty long drive from Massachusetts to to Maine. You know, it's not a it's not a short one, um, and they talk. And so we get this long section. It takes up quite a lot of the story as this talk on this road. And basically, he's, he's pieced up enough together to begin to say what's happening. Like, for instance, he says it's Ephraim. She, he knows at this point that it's Ephraim that's trying to control his mind. Azaneth uh, is taking over his body, but it's actually it's Ephraim. And, um, or less, Ephraim's connected to it in some way. I guess early on, he, I guess here he still say, thinks he talks about it as Azaneth. But the, the motive seems to be she wants to be a man to be fully human, right? So I think this is our first mention of this being a man, being fully human, right? Now, again, that's not really Azaneth's point of view. Azaneth is essentially dead for all intents and purposes. It's, it's Ephraim, right? Quote, she sensed the mixture of fine raw brain and weak will in him. Someday she would crowd him out and disappear with his body, disappear to become a great magician like her father, and leave him marooned in that female shell that wasn't even quite human. So it's like body swapping, right? Um, but there's a path to immortality here um, that's connected in some way with Innsmouth again. It's, it's, it's really, you know, it's like another path, right? The Innsmouth people already have the deep one path to immortality, but there seems to be another path here through, as I said, magic. And, it, and the source of it seems to be the same place. Quote, yes, he knew about the Innsmouth blood now. There had been traffic with things from the sea. It was horrible. And old Ephraim, 
he had known the secrets, and when he grew old, did a hideous thing to keep alive. He wanted to live forever. Asenath would succeed. One successful demonstration had already taken place. Yeah, so at this point in the story, the idea is still that Ephraim had wanted to live forever, but he failed. Uh, but Asenath is able to kind of carry on this mantle. Um, but anyways, it's good stuff. Um, so we get another mention of him reading the Necronomicon, or Ephraim reading the Necronomicon, and coming to some kind of knowledge about that. Um, Um, and as we keep talking, he kind of realizes, he, he kind of takes one step farther and, and admits to Dan, admits to our narrator, that he actually thinks Asenath is Ephraim. So he starts out saying, it's Ephraim, Asenath wants to take over my mind. But he really already kind of figured out that it's Ephraim. And how does he know this? It's because she hides her handwriting, right? They hide their handwriting. Um, Listen, Dan, do you know why my wife always takes such pains with that silly backhand writing? Have you ever seen a manuscript old Ephraim's? Do you want to know why I shivered when I saw some hasty notes Asenath had jotted down? Asenath, is there such a person? Why do they half think there was poison in old Ephraim's stomach? Why do the Gilmans whisper about the way he shrieked like a frightened child when he went mad and Asenath locked them up in the padded attic room where the other had been? Was it old Ephraim's soul that was locked in? Who locked in whom, end quote. So it seems what happened is Ephraim swapped, swapped minds with his daughter and, you know, his, Asenath's mind is the one locked up in that, uh, you know, in that paddock, attic room. Pretty horrible. It's really horrific stuff. And he knows that's what is going to happen to him eventually. The same kind of thing. He's going to be driven mad. There's going to be the body swap and, you know, if anyone is punished, it's going to be Asenath. And if anyone's going to end up being locked up, it's going to be him. Because once the swap is complete, his sanity will, will, will fall apart soon after. Um, now, there is a suggestion here that Asenath was, like, had developmental disabilities, right? That she was, like, mentally retarded. Um, quote, tell me Daniel Upton. Oh, that's his last name, Upton. What devilish exchange was perpetrated? Perpetuated in the house of horror where the blasphemous monster had his trusting, weak-willed, half-human child at his mercy. End quote. Now, does the half-human here, this is from Ephraim's point of view, that a, a woman is not fully human? Um, the weak-willed? Um, I guess that's like Derby. It could just be that, weak-willed. But I get a, like a, I'm not quite sure. Um, I wish we could see a little bit more of what happened to like Ephraim's body uh, in that padded room, you know. But, anyways, this is a really great section of the story, this, this drive home. Um, because after this story, then something happens. Right after he's telling the story and he's kind of made these conclusions and revealed them to Dan, to our narrator, suddenly his mind is swapped out and it's Azaneth in the car. Right? And Dan seems to realize it. Right? She's in command. And, the we, and he sees it in his eyes. He sees it in like his assertiveness, his upbearing. That it's, I guess it's Ephraim in command, right? The blaze in his eyes, though, was phenomenal. And I knew that he must now be that queerly energized state, so unlike his usual self, which so many people had noticed. It seemed odd and incredible that listless Edward Derby, who he who could never assert himself and who had never learned to drive, should be ordering me about and taking the wheel of my own car. Yeah, that's precisely what happened. He did not speak for some time, and in my inexplicable horror, I was glad he did not. So this sudden change in personality. Um, and then we get a, like an apology where, I guess it's Ephraim, through Derby's mouth, um, saying like, oh, I'm sorry I snapped at you, you know, calm down. It's very much like that, uh, the, the whisper in darkness, right? I guess that's another mind-swapping story. In, in this collection of them, where the, suddenly the letters from uh, Akeley, you know, like, oh, forget everything I said before. I, that wasn't myself, you know. It's, it's kind of like that. You kind of saw similar things in the case of Charles Dexter Ward, too, where they're trying to they cover up uh, the, what's really happened here um, and, and explain it away. But anyways, this, this chapter, chapter four, with this main trip and this drive home is really crucial. It's, it's the centerpiece of the story, obviously. It's the center chapel, chapter. Um, 
then we get to chapter five and we get, um, you know, it starts out, it seems that Derby's trying to get a new start. Uh, quote, the next two months were full of rumors. People spoke of seeing Derby more and more in his new energized state and as that was scarcely even into her few callers. So, because they're mind swapped, right? So, uh, Asmuth is living in, Ephraim is living in Derby's mind. I'd only had one visit from Edward, and he briefly called in Asmuth's car, duly reclaimed from whenever he had left it in Maine to get some books he had lent me. Um, so, he only came because he wanted the books, right? So, the, the friendship is broken off because Ephraim has no interest in this friendship, of course. Of course, and he starts attending these kind of cult meetings a little bit more. Um, now, one day, it's, 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 I'm not really following the timeline very carefully here. It might be important, but I don't think it is. But he, Edward comes back, and he knows he comes back because Ed, Edward uses a special ringing the doorbell. He'll do three, bop, 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 and then two more, bop, bop. And that's, that's like the secret code. It's really childish, right? But Edward Derby's kind of childish. Um, but that's the, the secret code that it's him at the door. And our narrator knows when he doesn't hear that, that it's not Edward. Um, and he seems to have his, his body back. And he says, Azaneth has gone, Dan. We had a long talk, last night, long talk last night while the servants were out. I made her promise to stop praying on me. Of course, I had certain, certain occult defenses I never told you about. End quote. So he's able to fight back. So that's what I mean when I said Edward has like a character arc in the story in that he's able to stand up to Asenath by the end a little bit, and he ends up standing in the ultimate way by the end of the story. And he does this through, he's learned enough magic, essentially, to cast his own spells, which can counteract whatever it is that, that uh, what, what Asenath Ephraim is, is doing to him. And he's becoming more aware of what's happening. He's gaining in power, and he's able to, you know, get some sort of balance in his in his life and be in his own mind more often. So he tells Dan sort of everything that he's got to kind of keep his head together before certain holidays, special ritual days will come when she might make this change completely. He also says like, yeah, this is not Azaneth at all. My suspicions are right. This is totally oldie from himself, as he says. Um, and he's got plenty of evidence for this. And he essentially convinces Dan, because if you normally hear this from a friend, you'll think, off to the nut house for you. But he says, no, I'm not going to send him to the nut house, right? This might be eventually an asylum case, but it's not going to be me. But he does want to think it'll be a good thing if he stays away from Azaneth in any case. Um, all right, so then we get to chapter six, and um, this is where... Our narrator eventually does contribute to sending him to the to the asylum um, because there's not much we can do. It's it's around Christmas, so the climax of the story is set around Christmas and Candlemas. Um, quote: "It was about Christmas that Derby broke down one evening while calling on me. I was steering the conversation towards next summer's travels when he suddenly shrieked and leaped up from his chair with a look of shocking and uncontrollable fright, a cosmic panic and loathing such as only the nether gulfs of nightmare could bring to any sane mind." My brain, my brain, God damn, it's tugging from beyond, knocking, clawing, that she-devil even now. Ephraim, come out, come out, the pit of the Shagas, Iash of Nugareth, the goat with a thousand young, the flame, the flame, beyond body, beyond life, in the earth, oh God. Um, and he's losing, he's basically telling Dan he's losing his ability to maintain his own identity. Um, so he goes and talks to the doctor, he talks to the lawyer, banker to all arrange this and they take him to the Arkham Sanitarium to the to to the nut house um, he's not mad obviously this is really happening to him and I think by this point um, the narrator admits yeah I believe him you know I've I know my friend and I know this change is not insanity it's it's um, it's really happening to him and he visits him there and he sees him in a in, in a kind of quote sane state right not being not losing it um, and they're actually talking about releasing him but then uh, Dan goes to visit him 
And here's what we get. Uh, quote, the patient rose to greet me, extending his hand with a polite smile. But I saw in the instant that he bore a strangely energized personality, which had seemed so foreign to his own nature. The competent personality I had found so vaguely horrible and which Edward himself had once vowed was the intruding soul of his wife. There was the same blazing vision, so like Azaneth and old Ephraim's at the same firm mouth. And when he spoke, I could sense the same grim, pervasive irony in his voice, the deep irony so redolent of potential evil. This was the person who had driven my car through the night five months before, the person I had not seen since that brief call when he had forgotten the old time doorbell signal and stirred such nebulous fears in me, and now he filled me with the same dim feeling of blasphemous alienage and ineffectable cosmic hideousness. End quote. So he's planning his release. So well, at least Ephraim has, again, taken over his mind and is trying to get out of the nuthouse by acting normal, right? By not acting insane anymore, which is easy to do when you're in control of, of his mind. Um, so then he's like, well, what am I going to do about this? So th this brings us to then to the last chapter of this. And kind of we get our last moment of Derby, I guess, revealed. He gets a phone call. And all the phone call is, is glub, glub, glub. And there's these sounds. And, you know, the narrator's like, what can I do? Who is this? And that's kind of the last true, I guess, expression of, of Derby before he completely loses his mind. And he becomes convinced at this point that, that he's lost. So now the story sort of flips back and forth between like after the killing of of Ephraim Azaneth Derby um, to the events that happened before because he well what happened first is he goes to visit uh, this house investigate the house right and he finds this letter and the letter is recounted on the final page of the story but um, you know the police doubt this letter. Um, the narrator writes, idiots, do they fancy those brutish clowns could have forged that handwriting? Do they fancy they could have brought what later came? Are they blind to the changes in that body that was Edward's? As for me, I now believe all that Edward Derby ever told me. There are horrors beyond life's edges that we do not suspect. And once in a while, man's evil prime calls them just within our range. Ephraim, Azaneth, that devil called them in and they engulfed Edward as they are engulfing me. So anyways, after this kind of back and forth about the police, we get the, the final events uh, of the story, the true climax of the story. And basically, the title is The Thing on the Doorstep, right? So Derby, still somewhat Derby, because um, it seems to be Edward in somewhat his rightful state. Um, is... The, the door knocking or the bell ringing and the door knocking alternately seems to be like a close to Edward's code, that kind of code knocking. So he thinks, is that Edward? So he goes down there and then he sees this essentially zombified version of Edward. Quote, the collar had on one of Edward's overcoats, its bottom almost touching the ground and its sleeves rolled back beyond its still covering hands. On the hands was a slouch hat that pulled low while black silk muffler concealed the face. So he doesn't see the face, right? So it's, it's in fact, it's not Edward's body. It's Edward's mind. Um, completely lost, right? He says, I heard over the telephone, glub, glub, the same sound that he heard over the telephone, the glub, glub. And he gives him, she, whatever pronoun we should be using. Uh, this figure gives our narrator this piece of paper. And it was all in Edward's script. So he reads it. And it's a set of instructions. It's very reminiscent of the instructions Charles Dexter Ward gives to his family. Telling them to kill Joseph Kerwin. He says, go to the sanitarium and kill it. Exterminate it. It's not Edward Derby anymore. She's got me. It's Azaneth. And she has been dead three months and a half. I died when she said I'd... Uh, she had gone away. I killed her. I had to. It was sudden, but we were alone and I was in my right body. I saw a candlestick and smash her head in. She would have been, she would have got me for good at Halloween mass. And then he talks about how he, he buried the body and stuff, but it didn't work. That's the thing. Um, because the body is still there, somehow Ephraim's will 
uh, in Asenath's body is still alive enough to to act. So this is why he says you got to cremate the body if you really want to end this once and for all, right? Uh, it's really horrific, actually. The climax of the story is really, really kind of gruesome. Um, this is still in uh, Edward's letter, which I guess was written in this corpse hand of Asenath's. Um, what I thought for a while, and I was right, and then I felt it tugging at my brain. I knew what it was. I ought to have remembered. A soul like hers or Ephraim's is half detached and keeps right on after death as long as the body lasts. She was getting me, making me change bodies with her, seizing my body and putting me in that corpse of hers buried in the cellar. So he buries her, and then it's, Will is still able to swap the bodies, right? So Edward, what's left of him, and that's why he can only say a gug is in this body with this smashed face that because he smashed Asenath's face with the candlestick. Uh, and that's the thing on the doorstep, right? That's where the title comes from, right? And basically the, this, the climax is when they, they finally investigate this thing on the doorstep, this body, it's Asenath's body. Quote, when they, what they finally found inside Edward's oddly assorted clothes was mostly liquid horror. There were bones, too, and a crushed-in skull. Some dental work positively identified the skull as Asenath's. Anyways, this is the event, the, the experience that convinced him to go and shoot. Shoot Asenath. Or, or shoot, uh, I guess, Derby. Shoot his friend. But it's, it's not really his friend anymore, of course. There's the body swap, the, the mind swap. Um, so, yeah, it gets kind of wild at the end and gruesome and, and the narrative it kind of becomes non-temporal, um, but it, it works because he wanted this final effect of the final scene being this smashed face of, of Asenath, this crushed in skull. Um, and you realize that that was what was shambling around Arkham with this note um, and, and ringing the doorbell and knocking the thing and, and making this last encounter with uh, with our narrator. It's really, it's, 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 there's a gruesome turn, I think, in some of these later Lovecraft stories. I mean, we saw it in the Dreams of the Witch House with the rat calling out of the guy's body. Uh, this story has it. Um, yeah, these might be two of the most gruesome stories Lovecraft wrote. Um, yeah. Anyways, I, I kind of like it. I really dig this story just because it is. It's kind of spooky. It's kind of frightening when we see what happens to to Derby. It's really you got a lot of nice psychological elements, and that you you know Lovecraft is kind of in Derby in the characterization of Derby a little bit, but not fully. Uh, we got the we got the a marriage here that's explored. We got some gender politics, even though it's all turned on its head, and we don't really have a female character here after all. We just have the background narrative of what happened to Azanath, which is similar to what happened to, to Derby. Um, you know. I don't know, is Azanath still living in that body up in that padded attic somewhere? Possible, I guess. Um, but, yeah, I love that. I, but anyways, I, 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 I dig this story. Um, a lot of other Lovecraftian themes, of course, like forbidden knowledge. We don't have, like some of the race stuff. We don't have vernacular traditions really explored too much here. Although we do get the rumors of the Arkham folk, as, as you might expect, as the changes happen in Derby. It's a small town and everyone seems to know each other and, and gossips about each other. But it doesn't, uh, we don't got the deep tendrils, but we do have like the, whatever Azaneth is into. I, I, that's what I'd like to see more. This could have been developed a little bit more. I'd like to know more about what Asenath Ephraim was into with the different cults. And we get these kind of shouts of Derby about Shawgoths underground and deep past, deep stairwells. You know, where we see deep, like long stairwells is like in the Dreamlands. So is he going to the Dreamlands? Um, certainly there's some connection to this New England landscape in Shawgoths, which uh, is some development from At the Mountains of Madness. Uh, this Shubnigarith cult, um, all this stuff is, these trips are taken on. That could have been developed a little bit more, and that would have been great. But it works as a really nice, tight story. It's 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 pretty ambitious, despite its its more modest length. I actually, I really do think I prefer stories like this to things like At the Mountains of Madness, where it just goes on way too long. Um, so I might have been wishing for a little bit more detail at times, but maybe I'm glad he didn't, because I I think it, the effect here is really nice, and it would have been diluted if it was a little bit longer. Um, 
so yeah, gruesome. That's that's that adds to it. I guess I guess Reanimator, right? Is is also pretty gruesome, but um, this one's made like really horrific, really spooky. I, I think that doesn't happen much in these Lovecraft stories, but this is this is probably the most like viscerally creepy story in, in the whole bunch. So anyways, I guess that's it. That's all I'm going to say about this story. Um, going on for long enough. Next up, we'll look at, I guess, the first half of The Shadow Out of Time. That's the next one he wrote. Uh, right, wrote about a year after uh, The Thing on the Doorstep. Uh, I'll do at least two episodes, probably two episodes on The Shadow of Time. So you can expect chapters one through four if you're reading along with me. You look like a chapters one through four. Uh, another mind swapping without the without quite the gruesome aspect. It's kind of it gives us a little bit of what he's trying to do at the Mountains of Madness with exploring another civilization, uh, alien histories and cosmic time, and all that. But it's done in a much shorter, tighter way, and it adds this really great device of of the mind swap. It's and and a really kind of fascinating culture with the Athenians. So I'm looking forward to talking about that story next. Uh, but not scary, um, not, not gruesome, but still fun. I, I like it. So this kind of Shadow of Time stands alongside the mound and at the moments of madness and to a degree whisper and darkness in exploring like this alien culture in some detail. So um, it's also a story he wrote. It took him a while to write. It took him, you know, he wrote it between 1934 and 35. So uh, he worked on this one for quite a while. So anyways, uh, that'll be it. That'll be the next episode. So um, thanks as always for listening. Um, I will see you next time. Contact me if you have any comments. You should know how to do it. You can find my, you can, or if, uh, you can send my email. You can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com, but you can also find me on Twitter and other places. So um, that's it. See you next time. Now we're strangers. Gee, it breaks my heart to see you. Day after day, turning away, as much as to say, you've never known me, stranger, after sharing all your kisses.